Revelation chapter 3, uh, this morning, the message to the church of Laodicea in Laodicea. Verse 14, this is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will be revealed, not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord, saints. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we come to you now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And by the help and strength of your spirit. Please help us to see this morning. Help us, Lord, to not be deceived. Help us to avoid the the mistake, the sin of Laodicea in self-sufficiency. Lord, help us to observe this morning so that we might uh, stay away from the sin that this church committed. Keep us, Lord faithful and true, as you have been faithful and true. I decrease so that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Lord, your saints, I greet you again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you once more on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Uh, book of Revelation or the Apocalypse of John, we come this Lord's Day morning to the seventh of the seven churches that our Lord Jesus Christ addresses in his vision that was communicated to the Apostle John, the church of Laodicea. As you know, these seven churches are meant to represent the entire body of Christ throughout all of time until Christ returns. This fact, though, does not override that this address and these addresses were first sent to seven real churches. This message was first given and intended for seven real churches. Laodicea was one of the three churches that were located in the Lycus Valley, alongside with, uh, along with Colossae and Areopolis. The church most likely had been planted and established 40 years earlier through the missionary work of the Apostle Paul when he was in Ephesus. The church was also most likely pastored by a man named Epaphras, whom the Apostle Paul commends in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12, for his service to Christ and to the church of Christ. Paul says in Colossians 4.13, I testify for him, that is Epaphras, that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Which means that this church at a particular time was most likely healthy. The city of Laodicea was situated, located along a major trade route. And because of their location, they experienced great wealth. The city was wealthy. 
it could be that many of these second generation believers were, were hearing a letter written to second generation believers. It could be that many of these second generation believers were also wealthy. The city was so wealthy that after a great earthquake hit the city in A.D. 61, they declined Roman government aid in order to assist their rebuilding of the city. Uh, They said essentially to the Roman government, we're fine, we have enough money to take care of ourselves. Laodicea was home to a school or university of medicine that became famous for its salve, which are ointments uh, for healing and protection of the skin. Uh, Most notably, they were famed for having salve ointments for the eyes. So people would come to Laodicea from all around to have their eyes treated. Another reason why the city may have been very wealthy. Laodicea was also noted for their production of soft raven black Sheep's wool that became fashionable among the elites. Many other trades were prospering in this city as well. But for all of the city's great resources, for all of the city's great wealth, the city had one great disadvantage. Drinkable, usable water. The city's location in the Lycus Valley was strategic for trade and transportation, but it was far from ideal from the standpoint that the city's most basic need for water was unavailable. Laodicea, in order to have water, had to channel water from the city of Heriopolis, which was located about five or six miles to the north. They used their great money, their great resources to build a piping system to channel water into their city. Now, Areopolis was known for their water, their hot water. They were known for having hot springs, which are still available today. The hot springs had a medicinal value. They were uh, helped or used to help people in a kind of healing manner. By the time that hot water reached Laodicea through those piping channels, the water was no longer hot, and the water was lukewarm. Uh, Not only was it lukewarm, but because of the piping system, the water was murky, muddy, cloudy, undrinkable, and really not usable. Colossae, to the east of them, was about 10 miles to the east, They were known for having cold water because they were located near a mountain. And so they would receive water from the snowy mountain stream. Laodicea did not have hot water and Laodicea did not have cold water. Laodicea only had lukewarm, murky, unusable, undrinkable water. The locals knew that drinking the water could make someone sick. Kind of like when you go to Mexico, you say, don't drink the water, right? For a city that was so affluent in financial resources, self-sufficient in civic spirit, Laodicea ironically lacked a most basic resource, water. Within this city, this rich city, there was a church known by Christ and loved by Christ. And as with each of the cities, the Lord Jesus Christ will utilize the certain functions and and elements of the city to communicate a message to his church. So this morning, what might we learn from the Lord's message to the church in Laodicea that we might take heed to and avoid? No church wants to emulate Laodicea. No church wants to be said, you're like Corinth, Or like Laodicea. We all believe that we're comparable to Smyrna or Philadelphia. Ephesus, if you will. But if we're honest with ourselves. We are often more like Laodicea. Than we would like to admit. This morning then, with God's help, let us consider the message of the church in Laodicea. With three points. Number one. 
the delusion of affluence or the delusion of riches. The delusion of affluence or the delusion of riches. This is verses 14 through 17. Our Lord begins his address to the church in Laodicea as with all the other churches. This is a very vital uh, portion of our sermon. He begins with a declaration of one of his titles that are directly related to a matter that the church was experiencing. To the church in Laodicea, he is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. And listen to this portion, the beginning of the creation of God. The church in Philadelphia, and for every person who has ears to hear then and now, Christ is holy and the true. In spite of the false Jews that were rejecting the Messiahship of Christ, Christ is the Holy One of Israel and he is the true Messiah of Israel. To the Philadelphians, Christ is the Amen, or uh, to the uh, Laodiceans, Christ is the Amen, the faithful and true. The church, in hearing these phrases, these, these titles, they would have known their Old Testament. They would have known that this passage is a callback to the promise, listen to this, of a new creation by the faithful God of Israel. Isaiah 65, verses 15 through 17, which Isaiah 65 stands behind the title, the Amen, the Faithful, and the True. It is the Amen, the Faithful, and the True who is promising a new creation in Isaiah. Isaiah 65, 17, God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. The faithful, the amen, the faithful and true makes this promise. But that's not the only thing that this verse that that Christ calls back to as being fulfilled. The notion of God as the the notion of God and of Israel as a faithful witness, God as a faithful witness and Israel as a faithful witness to the new creation is also prophesied in Isaiah 43, 10 through 12. Where the Lord declares to Israel, he says to them, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed and there will be none after me. The Lord says, not only is he witnessing to the new creation, but that you as his people, you are to be witnesses to the new creation that God makes to those who place their faith in him. The Lord goes on to say, there is no savior apart from him. That it is he who speaks. It's not some foreign God, he says, who's speaking to you. And that he has called you to be witnesses for him. The Lord comes to this church, to Laodicea, and declares that he is, in fact, the true Israel of God. Now think about that phrase, the true Israel of God. All throughout history, the history of man, the sons of God have been unfaithful servants and unfaithful witnesses. Let me ask you, saints, who are the sons of God in Scripture? Well, who has held the title of son of God in Scripture? Well, Adam has held the title son of God in Scripture. Luke, in his genealogy, calls Adam the son of God and Adam as the son of God was an unfaithful servant and an unfaithful witness. Who else is the son of God? Israel, the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 31, Deuteronomy 14, Psalm 82 and many other verses is called the son of God and Israel as a nation, Israel as the son of God. They too were unfaithful servants and unfaithful witnesses to God. But Christ, in contrast to these unfaithful servants, unfaithful witnesses, unfaithful sons of God, Christ is the faithful and the true witness. Christ is the faithful and true witness. Christ is the true son of God. He is the 
prototypical man of faith, the paradigmatic faithful witness. Christ is the true Israel. He is a true faithful son of God. He is the divine amen, the faithful and true witness to his own resurrection. Listen to this as being the beginning of the new creation of God. His resurrection is the beginning of the new creation of God. Christ being the beginning of the creation of God is not contrary to what Jehovah's Witnesses believe and what any other heretics believe. It's not a reference to Christ being a created being. Christ is not created. Amen. Nor is Christ himself connecting himself to the original creation. When God said, let there be, Christ is not saying, and then I was at that time as well. Rather, it is paralleled or meant to run alongside of verses like Colossians 1.15. You know that verse well, don't you? He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Listen to this. The firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Paul will go on and say in verse 18, listen to this, he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. You remember in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, Christ calls himself the firstborn from the dead. The ruler of the kings of the earth. What does this title mean? The title refers to Jesus through his victorious resurrection from the dead. Inaugurating and being sovereign over the new creation. He is the faithful and true. Of the young man that was prophesied in Isaiah, who creates a new heaven, a new earth, as opposed to the original creation. In this new creation, all citizens of this new creation have their sins forgiven. All citizens of this new creation have God's law written on their hearts. They love God. They are God's people and he is their God. Saints, you are a part of this new creation. Christ is the creator of this new creation. Christ calls into being life. He breathes into you and I the breath of life. He's the beginning. He starts this new creation. It is what Christ said to the church in Philadelphia. When he said in Revelation 3 and 12, when he builds a temple, makes us pillars that remain, gives us new names, in this new Jerusalem, in which all of this is a part of the new creation. Christ is the builder of this new creation. He's the first to rise. And with his resurrection, he inaugurates the dawning of a new creation that, like Christ, will be raised to eternal life in Christ. And we will be in the presence of God for eternity. Christ, now listen to what he's saying is the faithful and true witness that because he has risen from the grave. Now all who have ears to hear can be saved from the penalty of sin, which is death. They can have new life if they only trust in Christ. Those who are in Christ are what? A new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And this always and only begins with Christ alone. Now, why is all of that important? Why is all of that emphasized by Christ? And why do you need to know that? May I say to you, saints, that having a right theology about our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, it matters. Having a right theology about our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, it matters. The way that we think about God and the way that we worship God, it matters. Why? Because incorrect thoughts are heresy. An incorrect worship is idolatry. It matters how we worship. We must not for one moment assume or, or, or think. Well, God knows what I mean. 
or those who hear you, they know what I mean, even when I speak falsely about God. That that it's okay for us to speak falsely about God and get a pass because, well, God knows what I mean. Or how I talk about him doesn't really matter. I recently heard a song, and since I'm in the business now of, of destroying songs, uh, I recently heard a song attempting to creatively describe God's love. And the word that they used, I hope none of you are, are, are too shamed by this. The word that they came up with to describe the love of God is reckless. Reckless love of God. Well, no matter what the person is intending. Rather than going high with his language, he went low. Saints, children are reckless. Unbelievers are reckless. Insane people are reckless. God is not reckless. God is not reckless. Our language about God must always be high. What has God said about himself? Use that language. Uh, What glorious words can we use? Because God is glorious. To describe God, use those words. Don't use reckless words to describe the infinite one. Our speaking about God must always be in the process of being fine-tuned. Our worship to God must always be evaluated to see, is it in spirit? Is it in truth? Am I approaching worship by faith? Am I approaching the means of grace by faith? Now, what does this all have to do with the church of Laodicea? The church may have been wondering the same thing as they're hearing this letter read to them until they realize that Christ knows their deeds. Just like Ephesus, just like Pergamum, just like Thyatira, the deeds of the church in Laodicea, they were incomplete. And here's what Christ says. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold, that's important, or hot. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You remember from our introduction, the main underlying issue in Laodicea, don't you? Unusable water. And Christ uses the unusableness, the lukewarmness of the city's water to describe the church's spiritual condition and temperature. You're not cold. You're not hot. You're lukewarm. And church, you are just like your water. We live in Bakersfield. We all know that. Uh, We know the disgust of drinking a hot soda in the summer. Or drinking a bottle of water that we've left in the car in the summer and, 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 and just drinking it because we need water. But how much we want to spit that thing out. It's unrefreshing. It's unsatisfying. It's even at times nauseating, isn't it? Drink a hot Dr. Pepper in the middle of the summer. Christ uses the the nauseating reaction of those who drank the city's water as his attitude toward them, the church. He says in verse 16, because you are lukewarm, you're not cold or hot. I will spit you out of my mouth. Let me say. Christ is not speaking to a false church. He's speaking to his bride, to his beloved uh, people who think not people who think they are saved and are not people who actually are saved. Uh, Later, he will call this church his children that he loves. And because he loves them, he must discipline them. So this cannot be a false church. Uh, We'll talk more about that in a moment. If this church was not a church, then Christ was not even addressed this church as to the church. It would be a synagogue of Satan, not a church. Now, some of you may say, well, why are you even saying that? You would be surprised if I told you some of the theologians who are on TV. Let me stop before I say their name. Who don't even believe that this was a church. Let's stop there. This church belonged to Christ and they were being rebuked for their lukewarmness. 
simple observation. Most of you, if you grew up in a tradition like mine, have come to understand this passage as being directed toward Christians who are no longer on fire for Christ. That's the way I at least grew up. This verse was often used to guilt or shame people for not having some kind of subjective fervency for Christ. You're not on fire anymore like you used to be. Jesus said he's going to spit you out of his mouth. You're not hot like you once were. Let me just say this. Being on fire means different things to different people. It is subjective. But it is ultimately referring to some kind of half-hearted commitment to God. A, A type of lukewarm fervor for Christ. This is not what the passage is communicating. Especially with the reference of hot and cold. Now, don't misunderstand me. Half-hearted commitment to Christ is not something that Christ condones. Christ is not saying that that he's okay, and neither am I saying, that that Christ is okay with half-hearted commitment to Christ, not in the least. We should be full, heart, mind, soul, strength committed to Christ. But it is interesting, isn't it? That Christ implies that both hot extreme and cold extreme, that they're both positive. Not negative heart postures. The unbiblical traditional view that many, my tradition has adopted, asserts that that cold is negative and hot is positive. But you can't be lukewarm. That's the worst. You're either all the way in or you're all the way out, but you can't be in the middle. It's not what Christ is saying. How do we know that? Uh, Why would Christ commend cold, disloyal people? What, What does that mean? It means Christ says, I wish you were cold. Or I wish you were hot, but not lukewarm. The point is this. The water that came from uh, Colossae. What was it known for? Being cold. Cold water is refreshing. Cold water is usable. Cold water, it benefits the community. What was hot water used for? Those who had hot water in Heriopolis, what what was that water known for? Being soothing, uh, being medicinal. They were both hot and cold, useful. One useful for uh, refreshing, other one useful for soothing. The church was neither. It was not useful, not being useful for the community. It, It was lukewarm, muddy, cloudy. Not useful for the community and not useful for the body. So the church in Laodicea is rebuked for their witness. Not for their fervency per se. Now, now how do we know this is about witness? What was either the rebuke or the commendation to all of the seven churches for? Christ was either rebuking them or commending them for their witness. They were either being rebuked because they were not being faithful witnesses or they were being committed because they were faithful witnesses, witnesses, even in the midst of tribulation. They they were either rebuked for their compromise and unfaithful witness or they were committed for holding fast to Christ and their faithful witness to him. Now, why does this apply to the church there? Because in this rich city, uh, this city that has been practicing self-dependence, the city of of great wealth and education, the city with great resources, there was a missing element for survival. Water, clean, usable water. It was the perfect analogy for the church of Laodicea to give to the residents there as they called them to Christ. They were missing a perfect opportunity. In the same way they could say to the church or to the people in Laodicea, the missing essential person that you need is Christ to give you water if you thirst, to satisfy you. Out of Christ will flow rivers of living water. If you turn to Christ, come and drink from the well that never runs dry. But they were unfaithful in their witness. They gave no spiritual healing, no life to the city. Because they were not actively fulfilling their role of witnessing the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. The words of Christ are emphatic, aren't they? I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Literally, uh, our Bibles, some of them say it uh, kindly. I will vomit you out of my mouth is what Christ says. The church, they would know exactly the response that Christ is speaking about. How many visitors did they see come to their city and not know about the water? Drink the water and then then watch them. You shouldn't have drank that water. Spit that water out. Throw up sometimes even. Christ threatens the church to do the same to them. They were self-deceived. They had polluted themselves. And it affected their witness. Now. What was it about their witness that was that was being affected? Here it is. Verse 17. Because you say I am rich. And have become wealthy. And need. Have need of nothing. Christ says you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Just like the city who refused aid from Rome when it was toppled by an earthquake. They were saying we are wealthy. We don't need help. We're fine. The church became infected by the, the, the ethos of the city, the, the attitude of the city. Now, as I said before, it's very possible that this second generation of believers, they were rich, a, a rich church. How big, we don't know, but it is very possible that there were many in the church who were rich. Now, let's think about this. Think with me. How did they get rich? Well, there's commerce in the city, isn't there? There were probably maybe some who were doctors in the church because there was a school of medicine there. And eye salve, eye ointments were very, very prominent, very popular in the city. Maybe there were merchants, those who were actually the, the sellers of those black wools. Textile was another commerce of trade there. Whatever the cause of the riches... They somehow believed that riches were an evidence of spiritual health. Meaning this, that because they were rich, that God was with them. That they were spiritually doing well. Maybe they appealed to the Old Testament where the material welfare in the land was a barometer of their covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. There are those who believe that if you are not rich, that you are, if you are not prosperous... And you are in some kind of sin. They erroneously believe that God's people must be earthly rich. That's false. Let us be clear now. Being rich was not their problem. For those of you rich people in here, being rich was not their problem. All of us can breathe a sigh of relief now, can't we? What was their problem? It's how they attain their riches. That was the problem. In Revelation, whenever you see, whenever we see the word rich or phrase, I am rich, whenever it's used, it's always in the negative. It's always referring to those, listen to this, who have compromised with the ungodly and their ungodly modus operandi. They are rich by compromise. All of the churches, as we've been talking about, they lived in cities that were controlled by what? By the trade guilds. What was required for those who belonged to the trade guilds? Offering pagan worship to the patron gods. Many of the our brothers and sisters lost their jobs because they would not offer worship to the pagan gods. They would not participate in the guilds pagan idolatry but for some reason laodicea is thriving for some reason the church in laodicea is rich how are they rich by compromise they gave in they joined their guilds in their idolatrous pagan worship and they thrived they prospered they were rich but in reality they were poor they had material wealth But they didn't use their wealth to advance the gospel. They only used their wealth to build up their own temporary kingdoms. Spiritually, they were impoverished. Their evaluation of themselves was much different from reality. You ever fool yourself? Think of yourself 
in the opposite way of what reality really is? The city that did so much to help people see housed a church that was spiritually blind of their own failure to help people see Christ. The city that that clothed the rich with fine wool housed a church that was naked of showing that it was clothed in Christ and that others needed to be clothed in Christ as well. Saints, what about us? What kind of witness are we for Christ? Standing with some of the brothers a few weeks ago, we all confess that we are at times fearful, apprehensive, faithless, and even concerned that our witness has become predictable. We all prayed that Christ would help us in our weaknesses. But that we would not let our weaknesses be an excuse to not witness. There are many right now who are going through, and you've read the church reports, you've heard them read, many who are going through this dilemma of, do I compromise my conscience in order to maintain my job, in order to keep my place of employment? Do I, do I compromise my convictions, whether they be spiritual or not? They're my convictions in order to stay with this place of employment. One of our dear sisters works at Kaiser Permanente. And in her job, she loves her job, great benefits, all those wonderful things. But she said to me, it's like working at Nike. It's the biggest of all of them. Kaiser Permanente is the biggest medical field of all of them. But there are other shoe companies out there. In the same way, if she is forced to do something that is against her conscience... She's coming to the reality that, that maybe, maybe this is not the place that the Lord has me. Now, we are not going to make this vaccination thing a spiritual decision, but we are going to say that when you are faced with making a compromising choice, you are going to have to decide, will I go against my conscience? But more importantly, will I go against what God commands? Or will I trust that God will provide for me? And that maybe he's taking me in a new and different direction. And that I will have to walk by faith every single day of my life. Christ, by his introduction, is calling the church to emulate him. That they be zealous, faithful witnesses as Christ was a zealous, faithful witness to the gospel once again. If they show themselves to be faithful witnesses, they will evidence that they are a part of the new inaugurated creation which Christ is the master builder. Christ is calling us, brothers and sisters, likewise, to be faithful and true witnesses for him. Where do we go from here? Number two, the command of Christ. There's the rebuke, and now here is the command. Verses 18 and 19. The Lord gives this command in the form of a counsel. I advise you, he says. And while this is advice, it is also a command. It's a loving command, but it is a command. Christ will later express that this rebuke and command are rooted in his love and that he must discipline those who are his children. But but it is a sharp rebuke already, isn't it? Imagine being in the church and you've been told, I want to throw you up out of my mouth for the way that you are spiritually living. The counseling command from Christ is that rather than the church compromising with the ungodly, participating in their ungodly rituals, so that they may economically advance, he calls and commands them to trust in him as being their provider. Now, it is probable that this second generation church reasoned much like the churches in Pergamum and Sardis, that that in order for them to advance economically, they needed to compromise with the pagans because survival was necessary. Some people have said, well, I've got to eat, right? They may have reasoned that as long as I truly don't believe in these false gods and and, and don't believe in the offerings that I'm offering up to them, then I commit no sin since they are empty offerings. It means nothing. Therefore, I, I commit no sin. The more they prospered economically through compromise, the more they became spiritually impoverished. Uh, the, The richer they became earthly, the poorer they became spiritually. Christ commands the church, put an end to your compromise. 
rather than going to the unbeliever as your provider, Christ says, come and get from me. Come and, and buy from me, Christ says. Christ commands the church that we, we buy from him. Now, it's an analogy. It's not saying that there's anything that we can buy from Christ. Salvation cannot be bought. But that we come to him in order to truly prosper. Not to the ungodly. Think about the, the things that you have that are, that are valuable right now. Think about them. Are you thinking about your most valuable thing right now? What will happen to that thing if you die tomorrow? You have no idea, do you? Some of you left it, will leave it in a will to someone, but you have no idea. How rich will you be then? All of the, the, the toiling and, and the working and the stressing and the fearing and, and all of the, the ups and downs that we go through emotionally just to make sure that we have things. And Christ is saying, don't do that. Trust in him. He will provide for your most basic deeds. But then in trusting in him, you will know true prosperity of your soul. And that won't go with you, not stay here. The believer comes to Christ with nothing and by faith receives everything. Christ calls the church to come and receive receive gold refined by fire. A, A renewed zeal for Christ. It's the riches of salvation and the godly life that follow that Christ is offering. It's faith, it's hope, it's love. It is an unwillingness to capitulate in the face of opposition. It's an unwillingness to repudiate the name of Christ. Such was the case with the church of Sardis. They did not soil or stain their garments. Their clothes were white, for they did not participate in the idolatrous facets of society. The church of Laodicea was undressed. Imagine, church in Sardis, you are dressed and you are dressed white. Church in Laodicea, you're naked. Nakedness was shame. You are not faithful witnesses. Christ commands them, put on clothes. Clothe yourself in what? In Christ. Clothe yourself in Christ. There's no garment, no wool, no no leather that could compare to the garments that, that are in Christ. Paul commanded in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put, put, put on, be clothed in Christ. Make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on Christ to be a witness. That's what it is. Be a witness unto the world. To, to be a lampstand. Put on Christ. If Christ is brilliant, if Christ is glorious, if Christ is light, then when you put on Christ, then you are what? Light. Christ is calling you to be light. Put on him. He is light. When you put on him, you are light. We are commanded in Colossians 3 to be clothed in compassion. In here, kindness. In here, humility. In here, gentleness, patience. To bear with each other and to forgive each other in the church. Inside, we are to be clothed by loving compassion of Christ. And outside, the church is to be clothed with the witness of righteousness to Christ. You are witnesses here. You are witnesses out there. This is the command. How we live before the world. How we live in the church. How you live at home. It matters. We are called to be faithful witnesses. The little ones, they're watching us, aren't they? Your family and friends, they're watching you, aren't they? We here in the church, we're watching you. We are called to be witnesses everywhere we go. You don't get to go home and go, I'm turning that light off now. Ooh, we're good now. My wife is a gamer. She loves uh, games, playing uh, very violent games, by the way. Um, she loves playing games. But as she speaks to different people, as she's playing the games, she comes across Christians every now and then. And over the past month, he's had two opportunities to share the gospel with gamers. One of the gamers complained, I was raised a Lutheran. And then my family went to uh, evangelicalism and then went back to Lutheranism. My biggest problem was that essentially the lights were on at church, but they went off when we got home. Christ commands the church to come to him so that they could rightly see. 
How appropriate is that, right? Christ says to the church in Laodicea, come to me so that you can see. What was the, church, what was the city known for? Ointments that could help people see, that, that could improve their physical sight. Christ commands the church, come to, the, come to him for a better, better spiritual sight. Christ commands the church to have their sight renewed, to find riches in him, covering in him, sight in him. The church that thought they were on the right track, they deceived themselves. And Christ alerts them to all of their deficiencies. Trust in Christ. As I said a minute ago, can you imagine sitting in this church having this letter read to you? Well, what about today? You may not be a Laodicean, but you're a Christian just as they were. The same things may not exactly touch your life. But I think we would all be deceived if we would not say that there are some areas in our lives that are, are similar. Christ knows their most intimate thoughts and Christ knows your and my most intimate thoughts. What's the purpose of the rebuke? What's the purpose of Christ saying, I'm going to throw you up? I won't say that anymore. It's kind of, yeah. Verse 19, he says, those whom I love, that's why. I reprove and discipline, that's why. Therefore, be zealous and repent, that's why. The correction of Christ is a disciplinary work of love. Why is he doing this? Why is he being this sharp with me? Why is he being this forceful with me? Because he loves you. Sometimes our children uh, don't understand that. And sometimes we don't come with the same kind of, well, we don't ever come with the same kind of pure love of Christ. But sometimes our children don't understand that our rebuke, that our correction is loving. And just like any other good father, only for the fact that Christ is a sinless one. Christ displays his disciplinary work, but does so in love. And, and when Christ disciplines, sometimes we fathers and mothers, we, we are sometimes inappropriate in the way that we discipline. We're, we're sometimes too harsh or not harsh enough. The discipline of Christ is never inappropriate. Imagine that. Imagine having a father or mother who every time they disciplined you, it was always appropriate. It was always, you are absolutely right. There are times when we were disciplined as children, right? When we looked at our mothers and fathers and go, you were too harsh. Uh, you went too far. Uh, you, you said too much. You didn't do enough. You were either too much or, or not enough. Imagine, and don't even need to imagine, he is, Christ is, the one who every time he disciplines does so perfectly, appropriately, and loving every single time. The church needed to hear that you are like the water of your city, and I, I'm going to throw you up. Sorry, I said it again, didn't I? G.K. Beale says Christ encourages, this is important, encourages the Laodicean Christians to understand that the, the preceding indictments are not yet, listen to that, not yet his judicial wrath or punishing judgment, not yet toward them, but marks of his love for them as his children. They are not, he's doing this so that you don't get judged because it's coming if you don't repent. It's because they're his children that he comes to his people with his rod and his staff. Saints, the word of God is going forth this morning. His rod and his staff are going forward. They are reproving. They are formatively disciplining you. God is doing this. So we must be diligent then to hear and obey. Nothing out there matters right now. Christ is speaking to his church. Christ calls the church, return Go back to the zeal that you once had for witnessing. Imagine this first generation church planted by Paul. The zeal they had in the city. It waned. It became lukewarm like their water. But there was a time when their water or when the church was usable. When it was faithful. But over time it, it waned. Look around. Look at our children. You are first century First generation, if you will, RBC Christians. What will happen to them? The second generation. We must faithfully be witnesses to them and call them to Christ so that they will not lose their zeal when we're gone. 
That their zeal won't be found in us. It'll be found in Christ. That their zeal won't be found in, well, since dad or mom or grandma or whoever's not here anymore, I don't need to be zealous anymore. They need to go to Christ so that they will never lose their zeal. You have the responsibility to call them to Christ. Go back to being uncompromising, Christ says. Stop compromising with the pagans, Christ says. Stop believing with them. And in their worship, that that is the only way that you can survive. They know you bear, they, they know you bear his name. And when you compromise, you give them a false witness of who the people of God are. And a false witness of who Christ is. You represent who Christ is to people who don't know Christ. So when you compromise, their idea of Christ is that Christ is okay with your compromise. If you do not repent, Christ says, then you will prove yourself to be an apostate, one who confessed Christ but was really never truly a believer. But Christ calls out all the believing ones to return. He's inviting them to a a renewed fellowship with him because they were on the brink of losing it. Third and finally, the promise. This is verses 20 through 22. Contrary to popular uh, belief, I I better better read it, shouldn't I? Uh, Because you won't know exactly what I'm talking about. Verse 20, let's look at it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he will dine with me and will be and he dine with. I'm sorry. Come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. Contrary to popular belief. This is not an evangelic or evangelistic, I should say invitation to unbelievers to invite Jesus into their heart. For years, in what my former tradition called a rally, that's the word I was thinking about last week that I couldn't think of, only Brother Louie knew what that word was. Jesus is not standing at the door of unbelievers knocking on their hearts Begging and pleading for them to open the door and invite him into their heart. If that's the case, imagine how long Jesus has been knocking and pleading at the door of unbelievers and they will never open it. What is more, the doctrine of letting Jesus into your heart is not a biblical one. You don't ask Jesus into your heart. Biblical evangelism is the proclamation of Christ, his person, his work. And through the means of the gospel, Christ gives new hearts to those who repent and believe upon Christ. James Boyce says, Christ is knocking at the door of those closed hearts of those who are his, but who have turned their back on him and shut him out of their complacent, self-satisfied, worldly Christian lives. They're living lives of compromise. Christ is in fellowship with these people, but they've they've deserted that fellowship. They, they've they've abandoned it per se, not, not completely. They're they're on the brink of losing it, and Christ calls this church, who is His children, those whom He loves and who He is disciplining, He calls them out of love back into a new and renewed fellowship with Him. Christ is calling the church to renew fellowship with Him. He, he's calling the church to renew their loyalty to Him. Now, they were drifting. And Christ goes after his wandering sheep. How many times have you drifted? Christ in his mercy brings you back. How many many times have you wandered in Christ in his mercy? Lovingly, but also with his staff and rod draws you back. There's a couple of allusions that Christ is giving here. Allusion to Luke 12, where the master returns from a wedding feast and calls the servants to open the door to him when he knocks to enter back in. And what do they do? When they hear that it is their master, they run to the door, they open the door, and he reclines at table with them, and they fellowship together. The knock, it's a loving loving knock. But in this case, it's also a warning knock. It is loving, but it's also a warning. I'm calling you back. 
if you don't answer, you will be judged. There's another allusion. And I, I don't believe that this is speaking of perusia means final uh, uh, appearance of Christ. It's, I don't believe it's speaking about the final perusia of Christ, the final return of Christ, as much as it's speaking about a present immediate coming of Christ. He will come and fellowship with you if you open and renew fellowship with him. It's a call to spiritual fellowship with Christ. It's also an allusion to the, to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which we will do in a few moments uh, after second service, where we come and we dine with Christ. As Pastor Isaiah mentioned to one of the brothers, and there is this objective truth that we come to here, that we come to the truth that Christ is really present with us. Christ is really fellowshipping with us. Christ is really enjoying right communion with you and I. We should long for that. But it's also another callback. You've heard of the Canticle of Canticles or the Song of Songs. Song of Songs 5-2. The bride says, the voice of my beloved. He knocks on the door. Open to me, my beloved the bridegroom says to the bride. Do you hear the intimacy there? Our bridegroom is calling us to an intimacy that is greater than any earthly intimacy. He knocks on the door of his bride and asks her for intimacy. And because she loves him, she joyfully runs to the door and welcomes her bridegroom in. Now, this church could not be a false church or false believers if Christ, who is the husband, is coming to his bride in this way. If she is not really his bride, then Christ, in coming to her this way, is coming to a harlot and not his bride. No, this is his bride. He comes to her. He comes to his church. He offers himself. And what is more, Christ promises that we will enjoy a royal life granted to him. When he overcame in his finished and completed work. Verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In closing, Christ promises that if those in the church overcome pressures to accommodate the idolatry. To resist taking a low profile in their witness. They will inherit a ruling position with him. It's yours now, but it will be yours forever if you overcome. If they overcame the same t temptations to, to compromise their faithful witness as he overcame, Christ being the, the paradigm paradigmatic witness, they will be granted a ruling position in the messianic kingdom of Christ, just as it was given to Christ by his father. Now, whether that mean they be faithful until they die or be faithful until Christ returns, the point is, sheep of his pasture, be faithful unto death. Again, the promise of the victor or to the overcomer, it uh, points ahead to the hope of the new Jerusalem in which the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be. Saints, the seven churches of Asia belong to their first century, to that setting. But they're also a case study in the conflict and challenges that will confront the church in all time until Christ returns. We have, by God's grace, examined these seven churches and their struggles. We have, by God's grace, examined their persecutions. And we have been encouraged by Christ to lift up our eyes each time we've seen institutionalized worship of the state through the cult of the emperor we, we've seen pagan polytheism uh, economic pressures to compromise external per persecution from the jews internal lack of love for one another and other unbelievers more and more we've seen we shall soon in the uh, coming chapters see these things pictured in horrifying visions 
We will see a many-headed dragon. Monsters emerging from the sea. Another monster emerging from the land. We will see a harlot who is drunk on the blood of martyrs. The church desperately needs to hear in times like these and those. We need to hear from our king that he knows our situation. We need to know that he's probing our subtle alliances with the enemy. And we need to know that he is calling us to constantly fix our eyes on the holy city that is the destination of every single one of you pilgrims. Not only does Christ walk among the churches, but he's also coming to the church. He comes to the church with reproof, with discipline. And if we not only obey his command, but repent, then our light will remain. But if we do not obey, and if we do not repent, then our lamps will be removed. And Christ will also come in his glorious appearance from heaven. That he will bring our life and our witness of the world to a climactic end. For the church, he promises that he is the victor over the dragon. And that if we endure, if we are faithful even unto death, Christ, by his grace, will cause us to sit down with him on his father's throne. Just as he sat down with his father when he overcame. Many more chapters to go. But for now. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. Let us pray.